Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'd be the Bill Arnold part of that little sentence. We're going to have a great hour coming up. Kylie Crossland is going to be joining us in just a minute. But before we get to that, I want to make sure you've got full bragging rights. You're, you're the first person on your block to have a ticket to an evening with Jeff Verdorn and myself. We're going to have an exclusive studio audience event November 21st at 7 p.m. We're going to open the doors at 6.30. We'll have coffee and sugar-like cookies and we can uh, mingle and mix and meet each other and laugh and smile and bring your Bibles because Jeff is going to take us on a deeper dive into the hidden things and the heavenly truths of Christ's parables. So it's going to be a wonderful time to Bible have a Bible study with Jeff Verdorn, a regular guest of mine. As a matter of fact, he's on the show tomorrow, so that'll be fun. And also, um, it's just a great way to, uh, to meet some other listeners and enjoy coming over to the studio and seeing what we're doing over here. We absolutely would love for you to, to go. Go to the website, MyFaithRadio.com. There'll be a nice big section that says um, the, the evening with Jeff Verdorn. Just click on it. The tickets are free. We just need to make sure we know how many seats to set up. And we've got a limited number of seats, and they're going fast. So I would encourage you to go today or tomorrow or Friday at the latest and just get your seats because you can walk around your neighborhood bragging, I got seats November 21st at 7 p.m. All right, I'm going to take a little break and then uh, bring on Kylie. If you eat loads of pumpkin pie every day, you might be a bit heavier. If you watch three football games every day, your eyes would grow weaker. If you travel to see family every day, your wallet would be lighter. But if you give thanks every day, well, life would be a lot brighter. As you listen to Faith Radio this season, we hope you can focus on the most important things every day and be filled with gratitude. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Jesus said that in this world there will be suffering, but we can take heart because Christ has overcome the world. Maybe you or a loved one are in a difficult season or have endured many years of suffering. You know the Bible is the source of truth, but how can it help you move beyond your suffering and find hope in Christ? The Beyond Suffering Study Bible, created by Johnny Erickson Tata of Johnny and Friends Ministry, provides insights through short devotionals, connection points, highlighting key verses, and more. Faith Radio is giving away one copy each week this month. Enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for uh, listening. My guest, Kylie Crossland, is the uh, assistant editor of World Digital. That's World News Magazine. If you go to world.wng.org, that's where you can go uh, learn more about her and that wonderful website. Uh, she reports on marriage and family and sexuality, and she's my guest on Skype. Kylie, hi. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you so much. And you're well. Family's well. I always have to check. Yes, we're all well. Good. We have a new pu- a new puppy in the house. Really? What kind of puppy? <laughs> a golden doodle. I can I can hear. Is it a boy or a girl? 
Uh, he's a little boy. Okay, <laughs> I can hear I can hear him yapping in the background. Oh goodness! That's, okay, we're gonna... <laughs> don't worry. That's a okay. Okay, you've been reporting on a number of things lately, and I just want to catch up and I want to learn uh, what you've learned. Uh, interesting study of what's going on in Jacksonville, Florida, about marriage stability. Yeah, I love this because it's fun to report on positive things. Yes, it is. Um, so basically this was an effort to boost marriage stability in Jacksonville, Florida that worked, um, in some pretty amazing ways. So it was a group of philanthropists who were trying to find tactics to encourage marriage stability kind of upstream of family breakdown. So there's, you know, all these efforts to deal with incarceration and, um, fatherlessness, all these things downstream, but if we can boost marriage, um, stability, then they figured, okay, that's a better use of resources. So they basically poured resources into Jacksonville, Florida for three years. And in the end saw a 24% drop in the divorce rate. Wow. That is really encouraging. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And the cool thing too, is that churches were really the center of the plan. So churches did all of the work. They hosted conferences and, and it was for churched and unchurched people. So, you know, they really just tried to reach Jacksonville with this message of it's never too late to invest in your marriage. You know, it's never a bad idea um, to do that. It's good for kids. It's good for family. So um, they saw like increases in people coming to church, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing counseling, marriage conferences, all sorts of things. So it was pretty um, interesting study. And family is important when it comes to evangelism. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it was interesting too, because they used, um, basically big data. So they did a lot of research on how to identify people who are struggling in their marriages in a community and then resource churches to, to figure out, okay, within like a five mile radius of your church, who in your area is struggling. And then they used like Google and Facebook ads to reach out to those people and tell them about programs, you know, everything from like financial, you know, financial peace university or a weekend to remember conferences or even the alpha alpha project, which is like just kind of basic evangelism. Um, so it was really interesting that they use this data in online marketing and then churches hosted these events. Um, kind of this big partnership really saw this really substantial decrease in the divorce rate. And Kylie, when you look at a 24% drop in divorce in two years, yeah, I have to say that number has got to get people's attention. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the divorce rate in the U.S. overall is um, dropping, um, mostly because people are um, not getting married as much or delaying marriage. Um, but this was actually like, so, you know, across the U.S., it was like a 6% drop over the course of that time. And then this is 24%. So really a a significant difference. Um, And then also it just seemed like a lot of this, like they were getting surveys from people who were saying we were on the road to divorce and we decided not to get divorced because of this conference or this counseling or this, you know, so it wasn't just, you know, less people getting married and therefore less divorce, but people who are actually married on the road to divorce and decided not to get divorced because of this project. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging news and God bless Right now, all the listeners that are suffering in a marriage that they feel is hopeless, yeah, that God can absolutely. restore and give you new hope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One one more interesting thing was just that they that this project is really trying to point out to churches that marriage ministry is should be kind of a core. You know that if we believe that you know society is. Um, 
the basic unit of society is the family, and that if that is strong, then we can really reach society. Then churches should embrace marriage ministry. And so that was kind of an interesting part of the study, too, is just looking at how many churches, evangelical, Catholic, mainline denominations have marriage ministry in their budget, and it's like less than 20%. And so they're really trying to say, hey, this is a huge way that you can reach your community is by encouraging marriage stability. Mm -hmm. There's a story that came out, I think, last couple of weeks and a couple that did not stay married and they have a, I think this took place in Texas. There was a, a parents who had a boy that they were disagreeing about the gender of their seven-year-old son. Yes. Um, yeah. I know you've did some reporting on that. Yeah. This story, it was, you know, not in the news. And then all of a sudden very much in the news, the week a Dallas judge ruled in late October in the case. And it was just basically a custody battle, but it centered on whether or not this little seven-year-old boy is transgender. Mom says that he is, um, she refers to him as a girl. She's enrolled him in school as a girl. Um, she's talked about, you know, trying to give him, um, treatment, hormone therapy, you know, down the road, obviously not yet, but, dad has really pushed back and said, this, this is not true. He's not transgender. He embraces being a boy when he's with me. Right. You know, he's been manipulated into thinking he's a girl when he's with you. And so they were in this custody battle, both of them trying to get more custody of this little boy and his twin. Um, yeah, he's and got a twin got, brother, doesn't he, Kylie? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He has a twin brother. Um, and it kind of, I think it blew Texas governor, Greg Abbott tweeted about it the week that the judge ruled on it. And I think that just kind of took it mainstream so that, you know, more and more people were aware of the situation. Um, the judge basically said they have to share custody. So she didn't give custody to either. She said, you guys have to decide together how to make legal and medical decisions, which I think in a lot of ways is a win for the dad. Cause it means the mom can't push forward, with these quote unquote gender affirming treatments um, for this little boy without his permission, which he said he won't give. Um, and then the judge also kind of put a gag order on the parents, just said, hey, this is a minor, this is a family situation. Um, you guys can't talk to the media anymore about this case. Interesting. I saw the video of the little boy being interviewed, yeah. um, uh -huh. and it was so unbelievably sad. Clearly, yeah, it's cl clearly a little boy that is seven. And right. was just confessing that, yeah, mom likes to put me in dresses and paint my nails and I guess I'm a girl. And I yeah. thought, oh, no, 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 no. That's, you know, right now you're criticized for spanking your child or, you know, you, they're threatened to take I your know. child away if you spank your child. But apparently you can give them blocking hormones at age seven. It doesn't make any sense, Kylie. Right. Yeah, it's really tragic. And I think a lot of misinformation about whether or not, you know, there's kind of this messaging that um, puberty blockers are harmless and reversible. So they basically just put off puberty for little kiddos who are struggling with gender dysphoria and allow them to kind of work it out. The truth is that we don't know exactly what puberty blockers do and the long-term consequences. We know there are some health ramifications, but um, there's just a lot we don't know. And then there's also just science that says once you get on them, then your chances of embracing your biological sex down the road are so much smaller as opposed to what is termed watchful waiting. So just working with kids who express gender dysphoria, which is not even sure, we're not even certain this little kiddo has gender dysphoria, but just watching them, helping them, you know, working with them to try and embrace their biological sex, not moving to hormone therapy and treatments that could not be reversible down mm -hmm. the road. Mm -hmm. Kylie, I so appreciate you and your writing on marriage and family and sexuality. And given those three topics, we don't always have tons of good news, so I appreciate you starting this uh, with good news. 
And unfortunately, some of the other topics I want to talk to you about are not as lovely as that first story. But I'm going to take a short break. Uh, Kylie Crossland is my guest. She is the assistant editor of World Digital. And you can go to world.wng.org to learn more about uh, Kylie. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back in 90 seconds. All right, Kylie, I think you got the uh, dog to quit whining. I did. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> did, did he get a little treat or what happened? Uh, no, just petting him. Okay, Any good. Dog owner, I'm trying to figure this all You're out. You're calming your little pup down. That's very sweet. Uh, Kylie Crossland is my guest. She's uh, assistant editor at World Digital. And so you can go to, to world.wng.org learn more about that. All right, I want to ask you about uh, this development that's going on over in France. I know that there is... Um, fertility treatments for single women and lesbian couples right now that just used to be for infertile heterosexual couples. So right. uh, say more about that. And yes. it looks like there's going to be a lot of children that could end up with no chance of knowing their father. Right, exactly. And this is interesting because in the U.S., I mean, in a lot of ways, the U.S. is kind of the wild west of reproductive technologies. We don't really have any federal laws governing it. So France is working. The lower house of the French parliament passed a measure in October that will basically give all women under age 43 access to IVF and fertility treatments. Um, So including single women, lesbian couples, um, which is a shift from what it currently is, which is, you know, infertile heterosexual couples. And um, basically there was, you know, kind of this push that there, you know, all women should have the opportunity to be a mom is kind of the messaging. And there was a, you know, groups in France that really rallied against this, like rallied in the streets of Paris, like had a huge rally arguing that the measure intentionally creates children not like who are denied a relationship with a father. Um, and that it's moving fertility from, you know, fertility treatments from treatment for a medical issue to basically just a response to people's desires um, that doesn't appreciate the the idea that children have should have a right to be known and loved by their parents. You know, and there's cases where tragically they don't have that, but we shouldn't create children who won't be able to know and love their dad. I mean, they never have a chance ever no. starting forward right. um, in their life, which is not good. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And right from the get go, you know, this whole idea that it's just love that makes a family, you know, whether it's a single mom or um, two moms or whatever it is, it's just love that makes a family. And there's just, you know, more and more and more science showing that the best thing for kids, the gold standard is to be raised by their married um, biological mom and dad, that kids need a mom and dad. You know, um, one of my sources always says there's no such thing as parenting. There's mothering and there's fathering. And both of those things are necessary for a child. And this measure basically denies that. Mm-hmm. Almost makes you want to tell your dad on the air right now how much you love him, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, dads are huge. I mean, it, for for girls and for boys, the role of their dad is huge. And, you know, as, as you know, fertility treatments, as we're seeing kind of this generation of kids who you know, their parents were kind of at the groundbreaking beginning of fertility treatments become adults. They're really arguing that, you know, donor conception and all these things 
have left a hole in them, that they really have this longing to know their biological dad, um, or, you know, now with egg donor, their biological mom, and that even the best intentions um, don't mean that kids are um, are whole. Like, they have this desire to have a relationship with their biological mom and dad, and I think that's God-given. Yeah. All right. Now, there's another uh, story that I think first showed up in the New York Times about the uh, the, the exponential growth in pornography, especially child pornography. Right. Yeah. I mean, this was just the saddest thing to look into. I mean, writing this story just felt like, oh, man. Um, Basically, the New York Times just investigated reports of child sexual exploitation online. So tech companies are required to report any images of um, children being sexually abused. So child pornography would be kind of the broader umbrella. and they're not required to search them out. They're just required to report them if they find them on their um, platforms. And, you know, we're going from like 3,000 reports in 1998 to like 1 million in oh, 2014. Wow. Are you to kidding? Eight, over 18 million in what? 2018. So just this crazy exponential growth in access. I'm stunned, Kylie. It's really, yeah, it's, it's awful. And looking to it just... Um, you know, this huge workload for like the Department of Homeland Security has a whole department dedicated to fighting this, the FBI, but it's really hard to fight, you know, because the internet is so good at helping people hide, you know, access to child pornography before the internet, you had to be really bold and, um, and kind of crazy, you Mm -hmm. know, to get it nowadays. Um, it's so easy with encryption and mass locations and dark web for dark web forums for people to access this content, to share this content, to create this content. Um, it's just really, really sad and tragic. Um, so that was, that was a hard story to look into. Oh, I bet. I appreciate you um, sharing that with us as difficult as those numbers are to hear. And they're shocking. Um, Yeah. This this is what happens with depravity. Right. And I think, I mean, one thing the New York times didn't address, which I think is important to point out, Um, is that even like legal adult pornography, quote unquote, um, that there's a link between that and the growing demand for sexually graphic images of children. You know, Mm. porn is an addiction and Mm it numbs the senses. It gives users a desire for more. And so um, there's groups that are really pointing out the fact like this isn't happening in a vacuum, you know, as as people embrace kind of, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Porn's not that big of a deal. There's ramifications for that. And part of that is that some people are seeking out you know, more explicit things, the longer they're addicted to it. So it's just really sad. And Carly, how do those dots connect to sex trafficking? Right. Well, and that's the other thing. Yeah. You want to kind of ignore the fact you want to think, oh, you know, pornography is all, you know, people who agree to be a part of this. And Mm -hmm. that's not the case. You know, the rates of women who are depicted in pornography, who are you know, doing it un, like against their will, who have been trafficked, you know, who who didn't have a choice in the matter. I mean, it's just absolutely tied the link between the growing demand for pornography and sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. I just want to let my listeners once again know that, Kylie, you uh, report on marriage, family, and sexuality for World Digital. That's why we're kind of staying in this uh, lane, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, right. because I so appreciate the work you do. And there was another story, and I think you had a chance to um, interview a a public library employee about some of the uh, responses to the drag queen story hour events around the country. 
Right. Yeah. I just wanted to get a different perspective. I mean, Drag Queen Story Hour, I mean, probably most people have heard about it. It's just grown. I think there's 40 U.S. chapters right now, hundreds of events a year. Um, you know, if it hasn't come to a listener's local library, it probably is on its way. Um, and so there's this big response, you know, parents and community members saying this is wrong. We want to fight this. This, this shouldn't be a part of a library's program. Um, but I, I interviewed an employee who worked at a library who tried to host an event like this um, and over the summer. And the event was canceled because of some really like violent pushback, like people threatening the library, threatening the employees, that sort of thing. And so I was just kind of asking her, like, how can parents in a community, like on a small scale, like as of, you know, I, I take my son to our local public library, we check out books, you know, we're trying to get to know the librarians. And she basically just said, you know, yes, libraries are influenced by a progressive agenda, but they're also very influenced by their local community. And so if parents will, you know, you know, be a part of the library, you know, check out good books. We track, you know, she's like, we track all of that. What books are being checked out? What books are being handled mm -hmm. in the library? You know, go to events, advocate for good events, like voice concern about events that they don't like, um, that that can often be like a louder voice against these events than someone like standing outside the library with a sign or yelling, you know, those sorts of things, which um, might not influence the library as much. So it was an interesting perspective to talk to her. I mean, she's like, you know, um, has huge concerns about this sort of thing as a believer, but she was just saying, Hey, you know what? Like it really matters to a library, a, a child librarian. If a parent who they know comes in and says, why, you know, this event doesn't, um, this event isn't right. You know, like I, I'm concerned about this, you know, why are you hosting this? That, that speaks louder, um, than a lot of the protests. So, mm -hmm. uh, this week on Tuesday, I spoke to, um, a guest who was talking about, uh, a group called Changed, people that had left the gay lesbian yes. lifestyle, and yes. which is very interesting. And I know that you've got some information on conversion therapy. Yes. Um, maybe you would share that. Yeah. Well, there was a study that came out in September, and I was interested because it was just, you know, everyone was tweeting it, talking about it. Like, basically, it was just this groundbreaking study that found conversion therapy doesn't work. You know, that's what the argument was. Um, conversion therapy being like any efforts, therapeutic efforts to help someone with like unwanted same sex attraction or un like gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. trying to embrace heterosexuality or embrace their biological gender. And so the study came out and then um, there was a there was a rebuttal published, thankfully, by a sociologist at the University of Texas. And it was just kind of a lesson in the fact that methodology matters and that we look at this, oh, this study found this, and then we kind of take it for what it is. And he was basically just saying there are so many major metho methodological problems with this study that really um, make the conclusions questionable. So um, they basically just argue that it was a study of transgender individuals who said they had been exposed to conversion therapy efforts. And of those ones who said they had been exposed to it, you know, their rates of suicide attempts were higher. They had just like more psychological issues. And they're basically just arguing this doesn't work. These people, you know, their gender identity is set. Um, you can't change it and any efforts to change it are bad for them. And yeah. Yeah. And the researcher just argued, you know what, that's not actually what this, the study found. Um, it just found that of people who say that they're transgender and have been exposed to any, any like therapy where someone even questioned their gender identity, which could be a lot of things. I and mean, yeah. that's not even that those people have, you know, these higher rates. Yeah. Kylie, I'm going to have to jump. 
Yeah. Thank no. you so much for doing the show. It's really great talking to you. It's so good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Kylie Crossland's been my guest. She's at uh, World Digital, assistant editor. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with lots more. 30, Sunday afternoons at 2.30 on Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be connecting once again to Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Pastor, nice to have you back on the show. Thanks, Bill. Great to be with you. Yeah, you know, I've been um, following carefully the, uh, what would be it, what, what, what would we call it, the, the rot of our world uh, through a progressive stepping away from uh, solid biblical doctrine. And I love the fact that you uh, stand in the uh, stand firm in the pulpit. Well, thanks. Uh, uh, that's what it means to be a steward. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, we're seeing uh, paganism all over the place, aren't we? Right, and even in the church. Ooh, say more. Well, um, you know, I was asked uh, by one of my members not too long ago to do a Bible study on, or a, a study, if you will, on the differences between the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and other Lutheran churches in this country. And we spent a lot of time on the differences between the Missouri Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The acronym, of course, is ELCA. And I approached it this way. I said, uh, any church that wants to be relevant will uh, fall into, as you just mentioned, into rot and can even be led into uh, apostasy and even Mm -hmm. paganism. So, for example, what's relevant today? Well, relevant is do anything sexually you want, do anything genderly you want, Mm -hmm. Uh, name the topic, you know. Um, for example, uh, another thing that's relevant today is social justice. And so social justice now has become the gospel. So why are there differences between the Missouri Senate and the ELCA? Well, it's quite simple. The differences between how we view the scriptures, how we view uh, sexuality, marriage, gender, justification, etc., uh, boils down really quite easily to the word relevance. The ELCA wants to be relevant, and so therefore the ELCA has abandoned, and I'm speaking in general to make my point, there are exceptions with certain pastors and congregations. But in general, the ELCA has gone the way of the rot and the apostasy and moved into the slippage of paganism itself. Um, uh, let, me, let me just talk about the sexuality issue. Um, the ELCA has approved... Um, homosexuality. It's fine to be homosexual, not just in desire, not just in thoughts, but also in deeds. They've approved the fact that uh, pastors can be practicing gays and lesbians, and there's no problem with that. Um, This is slipping into not just rot, but paganism. Mm -hmm. And, And what I mean by paganism is this. It goes back to the Genesis 3 problem. Remember that Satan told Adam and Eve, you can't trust God. You know, he's holding out on you. And you guys being creatures, that's not enough. Be like God. Trust me. Trust what I say. Now, again, I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. But trust me. You'll be like God, and you'll know what's good, and you'll know what's evil. You'll call the shots about what's good, and you'll say what's evil. And so the old Genesis 3 problem is rearing its head in most of the mainline churches in America, and in our discussion here, the ELCA, with regard to sexuality. So the ELCA has called what is good evil, namely good, man and woman, 
husband and wife. That's what's God-pleasing. They say, oh, no, no, that's evil. And now they say what is evil, namely male, male, female, female. And now it's throuples, you know, with the congresswoman from California. That's all coming out, you know, Katie Hill, who resigned. All that, which is evil, now they call that good. Mm-hmm. See, this, this, is, this is satanic. <laughs> I've, got, I've gone from rot to paganism to satanic, but it is. Yeah. It really is. And now we start to uh, find other terms. And I don't know if this is a new term or an old term, but uh, speak to anonymous Christianity. Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody in my Bible class asked about you know, the Roman Catholic Church and, you know, is Rome going in this way? And I said, absolutely, yes. So in the, in the Second Vatican Council that was called by, by Pope John Twenty-third um, in the 19, late 60s and 70s, I believe. I think those are the right dates. Uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I may be mm-hmm. wrong on the dates. But in any, in any event, Karl Rahner was one of the foremost theologians at the Second Vatican Council. He was a German Roman Catholic theologian. And he said that you can be a Christian and you don't even know it. So you can be a Muslim, you can be a Sikh, you can be a Hindu, you can be a Jew. In fact, you can be an atheist, and you're still a Christian, and you don't know it. This is called anonymous Christianity. So in other words, you can be saved without confessing the Trinity, without believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And in this way, the Roman Catholic Church then, uh, what's going on now, if you've, have you heard about the Amazon Synod? Oh, I did hear briefly. Uh, do say more about it, though. Well, this is, this is being held in Rome with uh, South American and Central American theologians who are basically saying, you know, we're going to do our own thing apart from Rome, if you will. And the Pope, Pope Francis, has even said that the indigenous people and the indigenous pagan religions of Central and South America, we shouldn't just evangelize them. They should evangelize us. And in fact, recently at this Amazon, Amazon Synod, there were, they had to throw them out. Faithful Roman Catholics had to throw statues and images of pagan deities, pagan statues, out <laughs> of one of the places in Rome. This is, again, this rot, this slippage into paganism. And this all flows, because people ask, well, why, why does this happen? Well, they want to be relevant, just like the ELCA wants to be relevant. And what is relevant in the world? What is relevant in the world is to say that it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter who you believe in. We're all going to the same place anyway. So anonymous Christianity with the Second Vatican Council, and now Amazon Synod today with Rome. Watch this very carefully, folks, how this Amazon Synod goes. Again, it's um, a universalism as well, if we're just assuming yeah. everyone is going to be, end up in a good place, except, of course, Hitler and uh, the few other people that we don't like. Um, well, they, they would probably see Origen taught something that was wrong, that was condemned as well, this, this early church father. Origen taught that at the end, everything would be uh, uh, brought back. Even the devil and all of his angels will not be in hell. And uh, this is coming back. Origenism is coming back in that, in that respect with all of what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Brent, does it go back to a lack of understanding of sin? Yes. And, and again, I'm going to go back to my term I mentioned earlier, relevance. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to be relevant? Well, we're going to ignore God's Word and His revelation of who we are as sinners in His Word. Because what's relevant is, do whatever you want, whatever you desire. Do it. 
And so when, that, when, is the, if the, when that's what it means to be relevant, then when you read Scripture about what it means to be a sinner, we throw that out. And then here's the most, you know, here's the most or the worst of everything, Bill. And I have to say this before I forget. Okay. Here's the worst. With what I just talked about with the ELCA, is that Jesus then gets absented from the church. Now, what do I mean? I'm going to make a general statement to make my point. Generally speaking, ELCA congregations on the marquee outside of their building says the welcoming place. And what that means is that we're a judgment-free zone. We're not going to judge you as a sinner in any way, shape, or form. And in particular, we will never judge you with regard to sin, with regard to your sexuality. Mm -hmm. We'll never judge that. Now, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, here's what I mean. When, when you exclude Jesus from sin, including sexual sin, then you divorce Jesus from sin and the sinners that commit it, and you absent Jesus from the church. And what happens? What's the ultimate problem? You are no longer church. Or to put it another way, when the church fails to call people uh, sinners and their sin sin, then Jesus gets changed. Not, he's no longer savior of sinners. He becomes some just social justice warrior, etc. But the main point I want to make here, and this is the biggest danger of all for my money, is when you say that you're not a sin and we're not going to judge you as a sinner, and especially your sexual sin, you then divorce Jesus from sinners, and then you are no longer church. And the reason I say that is in Matthew 18, you remember, the, the, the whole context of that chapter is how you deal with sinners in the church and their sin. And you go and talk to them, and you try and win them. You try and tell them, I forgive you. And then Jesus says, in the context of that, where two or three then are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. You remember this? Mm -hmm. That's the entire context. So when, when you no longer will call sinners sin, and you don't need Jesus as the Savior of sinners and their sin, then he is no longer in the midst of them. And then you're no longer church. Why? Because you've divorced him from the church. This is what's being done on purpose all under the guise of piety, religion, etc. So Brent, what are some of the other side effects that come from wanting to be relevant? Might they be things like, well, let's just dump some of the pronouns and talk about, I believe, yes. in God the Mother. Maybe we should uh, uh, bring up that yes. once in a while. Yes, and this gets to another big issue. I'm glad you raised this, Bill. Okay, so to be relevant then is you cannot use patriarchal terms. You can, you can no longer call God Father. You can no, look, no longer call Jesus his son. And why is that? Because we've all learned that that's just something that white male Christians have imposed upon people. And so it's a construct. And so it has to be deconstructed. Or what is has to now be destroyed and rebuilt. Therefore, in order to be relevant, these things, this construct of way, white males and white Christian males has to be destroyed and then replaced with what's relevant. And what's relevant? Paganism. Paganism. Mother nature. Earth as our mother. The very things that the Israelites encountered when they entered the land of Canaan or the promised land. And that God said, you must eliminate this. And don't intermarry with these people, because if you do, they'll lead you astray. Ask Solomon about that. He'll tell you how that, all about works. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay? So, now, why is, here's another reason why this is so important, Bill. When churches then decide to say the creed and change the name of God and say, I believe in God the Mother, or maybe not so crass, 
just simply, I believe in creator, or I believe in savior. Yeah, so they're dumping words like father. Yeah. Here's, here's the biggest issue. You see, in the scriptures, one of the greatest gifts that God gives his people is his name. And why is that important? Here's why. Because when God gives you his name, he gives you access to himself. Now, when you change God's name, you can no longer address him in the way he's given it, and therefore you don't have access. Let me illustrate. Let's pretend you and I don't know each other at all. You're in a car accident, and I'm walking by, and we don't know each other. And you say, hey, man, can you help me? And I look at you, and you're weird, and I keep walking. But everything changes in our relationship. When I come up to you, and I say, and I shake your hand, and I say, hello, my name is, did you hear that? Mm -hmm. My name is Brent Kuhlman. What did I just give you? I just gave you my name. Therefore, you have access to me, and you can call upon me for help. Mm Mm-hmm. So God gives you his name, and one of the ways that he gives you his name is baptism, Matthew 28. When you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, God has given you his name, and therefore you have access to him. When you change the name or refuse to confess the name that he's given you, you no longer have access to him. And what's the final result of this? Then you're no longer what? What did I say earlier? You're in danger of no longer being church. Yeah, being a church. See, people, people don't take – well, I think part of the problem is what I'm saying might be shocking to people, and maybe it's shocking because many people, Christians include, don't know their Bibles very much anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. Delighted to be talking to Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the uh, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Uh, right before we went to break, Brent, uh, I was we were talking about the name, and God gives you His name, and God purposefully calls Himself Father and Jesus His Son. So we really have no right to uh, redefine His gender, do we? Oh, could you say that again? We had a little glitch. In yeah, the, uh, phone yeah. Line. When we were talking about. People trying to be more relevant, and, and then we're saying that God purposefully calls himself Father, and he calls his Jesus his son, so we have no right to try to redefine his gender. That's correct, or the way he gives himself to us, and the way he is. And, and if we think that we can do that, then we're playing Genesis 3 again. Mm-hmm. We're God. We're no longer content to be a creature. See, when, when you know... See, this is the wonderful thing about being justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus. And this is what's so wonderful when Jesus in John 8 says that if you're my disciples, you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When, when the wonderful part of this is that you are content then to be like Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. You are content to be his creature, to live by faith. Remember Paul says that the justified live by Faith, that's Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. When you live by faith, you're content to be a creature, and you're content then to let God be who? God, mm-hmm. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You only run into problems when you believe the satanic lie. Oh, I'm going to call the shots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Brent, let's talk about uh, people inside the church 
the faithful uh, group inside who are apparently falling prey to some of these ideas and believing these lies. Right. And uh, this, this is one of the tragedies, uh, uh, one of the greatest tragedies that happen in the history of the world, in the history of the church. Uh, on the one hand, we should not be surprised because Jesus said this would happen. The apostles said this would happen. You know, Paul talks about this in Second uh, Timothy when he talks about people who have itching ears. Remember this? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, uh, doing this off the top of my head, I think Second Timothy chapter 3 talks about what will happen in the last days. Um, there will be people who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, etc., etc. So I guess what I'm trying to say, and not very well, so pardon me, is this, we shouldn't be surprised. This is part of what it means to live in the last days. Now, part of also living in the last days is, as Paul says, since I mentioned the letters to Timothy, is one of the main things that Timothy must do, one of the main things that Titus must do, and what all pastors must do in the church is contend against the false teaching and the false teachers. Uh, Paul speaks of it this way in 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, you must fight the good warfare. <laughs> and, and that's mm-hmm. confessing the truth and going against the false teaching and false teachers. So it's church militant time until the last day. Yeah. And we trust the Lord. Here's where we must trust the Lord. There are two pitfalls here. One is pessimism. Pessimism is one of the greatest sins that a pastor and, and parishioners can have. When you're pessimistic then you don't trust the Lord. The other danger is to be triumphalistic uh, and then be utopian. And that's, of course, false. When you're a utopian, boy, then, then things go bad. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think of Acts 4.12, and salvation is to be found in him alone, in all the world there is no other name by which you can be saved. Yes. And then I think of the, the people trying to be more relevant, and they're, instead of saying Jesus Christ... Our only, the only son of God, they're referring to him just as Savior without a name. And I go, that's absolutely absurd. Yes, and we have to be precise about this. By the way, this brings up something. We were talking about Rome earlier before we went to break. You know, one of the things that illustrates this anonymous Christianity and the rot and the uh, apostasy and then the moving into paganism is in 1999 – do you remember what happened in May of 1999? Well, that's, that's an odd question to ask, but this was, for me, I'm a geek. I'm a church history geek, so I pay attention to these things. In May of 1999, Pope John Paul II, he kissed the Quran. Hmm. And this is in, this is, he did it at the Vatican, and he did it with an entire delegation of the Shiite imam of the Kadum Mosque and other prominent Muslims. Now, most people might say, well, that's no big deal, Pastor Goldman. It is a big deal. Anybody who's been to a Roman Catholic Mass, what's, what, is, what does the priest do before he reads the Scriptures? What kisses he, he the Bible. Kisses it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kisses the Bible. Why? Because that's God's Word. This is God's Word, and we, we hold it as holy and sacred. Now, when the Pope kisses the Quran, that gives the Quran equivalence with what? The Bible. Exactly. In fact, it, he, he's confessing that not only is the Old Testament, New Testament, the Word of God, but by kissing the Quran, he's saying that too is revelation from God, and we must listen to it. Now, again, this is huge. It's absolutely huge. And you know, recently Pope, France, Pope Francis met 
uh, in Abu Dhabi. You remember that? Remember what he said? He said that God's will, this is going to blow your minds, folks. God's will is pluralism and diversity of religions. And, of course, that contradicts what you quoted from Acts 4. Mm-hmm. It contradicts what Jesus says in John's Gospel, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you want to be relevant, those things have to be thrown out. And if you want to be relevant, then you kiss the Quran, and then you said that God wills pluralism and diversity of religions. Brent, it's... Uh... This is difficult stuff because you see it all around, all around with people saying, I'm going to just sort of invent my own system that's going to work better for society. And well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. What I, when I said earlier is that we try not to be we, – we must guard against the sin of pessimism. And here's what I want to say with mm-hmm. this. Jesus gives a promise, Bill, in Matthew's gospel. You all remember this, don't you? Peter, when he confessed Jesus to be the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God, Mm -hmm. and then Jesus said, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Ah. Amen. (laughs) That's that's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we don't despair. Yes, it's hard work, but we must not despair. And so when the times are tough, like they are today— what do we do? We do like Paul says to Timothy. He says, first of all, in 1 Timothy 2, first, which means not just the first thing in an order of procession, but this is primary. One of the primary things that the church must do, led by her pastor at church on Sunday morning, is to pray. And pray for who in particular? For kings and all those in authority and for all men. Mm-hmm. So, to Jesus, he's Lord. Oh, yeah. You know, this brings up another thing. Go ahead. You know, in Acts, prayer, prayer, read, read prayer in Acts This is what the church does. She prays. In Acts chapter 2, you remember, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and then what's the fourth? The prayers. The prayers. In the Greek, it's plural. It's not prayer in general. It's the prayers. Okay. All right. Well, give us a a little counsel as to how how we should respond to wrong ideas where we still want to be showing... Uh, God's love and light and show the face of Jesus to people that we're disagreeing with? Well, first, know your scriptures. You've got to know your scriptures. So you, this is the sword of the Spirit. So know your Bible. Know the Word of God. Secondly, know that you're a sinner for whom Jesus died. And w- when you speak to people about topics, then you can be humble, uh, not arrogant. Mm-hmm. You can be gentle, and you can be loving. Trusting what? Trusting that the Lord will use you as his instrument to speak your word to help people. And part of the help sometimes is to say, oh, dear brother, dear sister, that's simply not true. That's not what the scriptures say. And, of course, if they say something opposite than what I like to do, I like to tweak them and say, so you think you have better words than the Lord, do you? <laughs> that's not very good. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Please, I beg you, don't do that. Yeah. When it seems like whenever you bring up the idea of sin, people usually jump on the, oh, you think you're so self-righteous. Right, and, and that we have to guard against that. Yeah, of course. And I always try to remind people that just sin is a positional uh, place that I live in and you live in. So we're, we're on the same playing field when it comes to sin. Yeah, we're that's all right. sinners, and we need a way to uh, have redemption from sin, and that's through Christ. So... Um, People just are so defensive when you 
talk about sin because they think it's, oh, what, I'm the sinner and you're not. Yeah, yeah. So your point is well taken. When you talk to people, it's not like I'm better than you are. It's, no, I'm a sinner like you, and I'm here to tell you that Jesus died for my sin, and now I want you to believe that too. Would you please believe that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Matthew 18, by the way. Right, right. Well, you know, uh, Brent, it's, it's uh, the Lord told us that we would be up against this. This would be the opposition and the hostility we would face, and he did it himself first. So uh, we're in good company, aren't we? Yes. You remember the book of Revelation portrays the victory has been won. Jesus has been slain, but he's won. That's, one of the, that's the main message of the book of Revelation, and it should teach us, especially with what we're talking about today. The victory's been won. So we go about our work knowing that, trusting that, you see, mm-hmm. so that we don't despair or so that we don't become utopian or arrogant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're like that uh, player in the huddle that just fires everybody up. <laughs> I hope so. No, you, you, you fire me up, so I, I just enjoy uh, talking to you, and thank you so much for doing the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. God's peace. God's peace to you, Pastor Brent Kuhlman has been my guest, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.